0: Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. So today we are continuing in our teaching series, Welcome to Babylon. Uh, We've been talking about God's people who lived literally in Babylon. They were transplanted from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. They, They left a context where their faith their convictions and their values formed the dominant worldview, but they found themselves in a setting where all of those things that they held near and dear were criticized, marginalized and demonized. And uh, you may remember that in the last several weeks, we talked through John, excuse me, through Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 was a letter contained a letter that God sent to his people instructing them how they could not just survive in Babylon, but thrive in Babylon. Well, as I already shared with you this week, we're moving to the book of Daniel. Daniel, as many of you know, was probably the most uncompromising man of God in the entire Bible. And yet Daniel and a a select number of his friends faced incredible pressure to cave in and compromise their faith and become more and more Babylonian. And uh, I'm sure you know by now that we as followers of Jesus Christ are likewise facing incredible and intense pressure in this world today to compromise our faith, to cave in on the things that are most important to us, and become more and more like the world. That's what we're facing Right? And and so today we're going to be talking straight from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, about this very important thing you need to understand, as I need to understand, and your family and my family, and that is this how to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon. All right? So the first thing I want you to see this morning from Daniel chapter 1 is the challenges in Babylon. Okay? Challenges in Babylon. Let's begin reading in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, "...to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years... And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So we're talking about the challenges that Daniel and these other transplanted Jews faced. What's going on here? Well, obviously they're recounting what you already know, and that was that, that at a certain point in time, God allowed the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar to ransack Jerusalem and to carry off the holy vessels into the pagan temple in Babylon, and to kidnap some of the faithful people of God and take them to Babylon. Now, specifically, scholars tell us that this, this group of youths from the prominent families probably numbered between 50 and 70. So specifically, this group mentioned in Daniel 1 was about 50 to 70 prominent young men, teenagers, probably aged 14 to 16, from Jerusalem and taken against their will to Babylon. for Listen, for the specific purpose of bending them and breaking them and melting them down and reshaping them in the image of Babylon to serve in the king's palace. It was a three-year proposition. For three years, these young men were going to be subjected to everything that Babylon could hit them with, that they might be transformed into the image of the world of Babylon. kind of reminds me of when I took a little trip back in 1991 to a little place called Paris Island which is on the coast of South Carolina. That's where the Marine Corps does boot camp. And I believe it was November 5th of 1991, about two o'clock in the morning, I got off this bus and a hulking Marine drill instructor met me there and showered me with all kinds of loud profanities and vulgarities and welcomed me to beautiful Paris Island, South Carolina. And within 24 hours, I had a new haircut, I had some strange clothes that I had never worn before. I was eating strange food that I had never eaten before. And I was introduced to a three-month training regimen, which very similarly to Daniel was intended to break me and a hundred other recruits down to purge all the civilian filth from our bodies and minds and reshape us as U.S. Marines. Now, I guess the only difference between me and Daniel was that I volunteered Daniel was voluntold, but nevertheless, we found ourselves in a setting where we were, we were in, expected to be completely reshaped. That's, that's exactly what was going on there. And I'll tell you something, you get in that context and it's tough to take a stand, is it not? I mean, think about some of the specific things that Daniel and his friends faced. We're talking about the challenges in Babylon. First of all, they were removed from their homes Right now, we have every reason to believe that Daniel probably never traveled more than about 10 miles away from Jerusalem when he was a kid and a a young teenager, and yet now he found himself 600 miles away from his home, his family. And by the way, we have no reason to believe that Daniel ever saw his family again removed from his home. Second of all, he was immersed in Babylonian teaching and language. So Daniel and these other youths were given a full-ride scholarship to B.U., Babylon University. And at Babylon University, they were immersed in Babylonian philosophy, Babylonian culture, arithmetic, science, religion, the whole nine yards, most of which ran contrary to what they had been taught as children about God and about the world. In addition to that, they were forced to adopt A Babylonian diet. Now, remember, look at the scripture. Daniel and these boys come into the king's palace and they're told, hey, listen, from now on out for the next three years, you're going to be eating off the king's table. The choicest foods. The best of everything. Every meal was going to be a five-star, seven-course gourmet feast. And you say, man, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the two problems with that. First of all, a lot of what the Babylonians were serving was unclean for a Jew to eat. Because right? God had said in the Old Testament, hey, there's certain things that, that, I, that you are not allowed to eat. You, you are not allowed to consume certain things. They're unclean. That's why Daniel, later on you'll see, said, I, I didn't want to defile myself. Okay? And the other problem was that a lot of this food had already been sacrificed in some religious ritual at a Babylonian pagan temple before it ever came to the king's table. And so Daniel had a problem with that as well. We'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the other challenge is this. They were given new names. Did you see that? See, these four specific boys are mentioned and all four of them are given new pagan names. Watch this. Just look at this graphic here, okay? Here are the four guys mentioned. These are their Hebrew names and what those names mean. And back in those days, names really meant something, okay? they're, They're their Babylonian names. So Daniel was known as God is my judge. That's a godly wonderful name, but now he's known as Belteshazzar. Bel is my protector. Who is Bel? Bel was one of the chief Babylonian gods. These pagan gods. Hananiah, the Lord shows grace. Shadrach, under the command of Aku. Again, Aku was one of the chief Babylonian deities of that day. Mishael, who is like God. You gotta love that name. And yet, Meshach was his new name, who is like Aku. And lastly, Azariah, the Lord helps. Abednego, servant of Nebo. Nebo again was another one of the Babylonian deities. And of course, this process of renaming these these boys was an attempt to get them to even forget who they were way back in the day in Jerusalem and to help them to embrace their new identities in the world of Babylon. I'm telling you, you put anybody in a context for three years under all of those circumstances and challenges and it will break them. And that was exactly the point. Now, what, what do we face today? I mean, do we have challenges in our own Babylon today? You better believe it. I mean, just think about some of the challenges that we face. I think primary or, or primarily are theological challenges, get that down, okay? But there are certain things that we as followers of Jesus Christ hold near and dear in terms of who we are and what we believe about God and Jesus. And, and we're, not, we're not giving up any ground on those. A high view of God's inerrant word, His, his Scripture to us, the Bible... Uh, Certainly, God as sovereign creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miraculous ministry, his substitutionary death on the cross, his physical bodily resurrection, absolutely not up for debate. And yet, if you stand up in almost any context these days outside of a church and tell people you believe that, you're going to catch some heat and you're going to be ridiculed in some way. We face theological challenges. We face moral challenges. The world in which we live is a world of the new morality where almost anything is permissible. All right, I mean, you want know, you think about this. Uncompromising integrity in the workspace. You tell your co-workers, you tell your boss, or you tell whoever in your workspace, look, we're not cutting corners, we're not hedging or cheating on our taxes, we're, we're going to be people of integrity and run this business with integrity. A lot of people will wonder if what planet you're on, right? We can't possibly survive in business if we if we play by the rules, right? Uncompromising integrity in the workspace. How about sexual and moral purity on the school campus, right? I mentioned to our 9:30 service, and and certainly we have some students in here as well, right? middle school, high school, college, you take a stand for moral purity wherever you find yourself, you will be the butt of jokes and you'll probably be excluded from certain circles. What about in our own homes? I mean, we're challenged every day by what's coming into our homes on the screens, television, computer screens, devices. It's almost as if a broken sewer pipe is just spewing into our homes. right? And yet God says, that's not for you. You can say no to these things, right? There's there's challenges. What about chronological challenges? There's there's certain chronological challenges as well. Chronological challenges simply mean the use of our time. Right? I mean just if I was to look at the calendar of the average Christian person in America, I would probably find the fact that God, yes, they believe in God, and God probably has some place somewhere on their calendar. But what you find out is that God is just one of many things they have going on in their life, right? I mean, God God is just on par with everything else. Friends, let me tell you something. You show me a calendar that illustrates that God is number one in your life, and I'll show you a family that will thrive in Babylon. A family that will thrive in Babylon. Just this week, Pastor Rob reminded me of Derek Carr. Derek Carr is currently the uh, quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, solid Christian man and evidently grew up in a solid Christian home. This is talking about chronological challenges. This is what Derek Carr said. My mom and my dad taught me that my faith was number one. If there was a game on Sunday morning as a kid, we always told my traveling coach, I'm not going to be there, I'm going to be in church. I'm glad my parents set those priorities early. I mean, there's just one, one guy, but simply saying that my family had a priority and that was to God, right? Now, look, you you know me well enough to know that I don't get up here and beat the drum of legalism every single Sunday, right? I mean, where in the Bible does it say, you must be in church 52 Sundays out of the year? It doesn't say that in the Bible, does it, right? I mean, listen, I'm the pastor. I'm not even here 52 Sundays out of the year, okay? All right? Hey, I mean, here's the deal. We have things going on. There, there's activities. There, there, there's, t- there's commitments. All these different things we have in our lives. But I will tell you this if there's an activity of some kind in your life that, that brings you to a place of habitually missing church, you need to find a new activity. Okay? I mean, God just set me to tell you you need to find a new activity. Because it, it is it is taking you away from God. We're we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But those are the kind of challenges we face. We're, we're, We're facing theological challenges. We're facing moral challenges. We're facing chronological challenges, how we use our time. The good news is this. The challenges we face in Babylon do not have to have the last word in our lives. Did you know that? The challenges we face do not have to have the last word, or as Pastor Chuck Swindoll has so famously said, life is only 10% what happens, and 90% how we respond to it, right? And that's what I love about Daniel and his friends. They faced the challenges in Babylon, but as we're going to see beginning in verse 8, they also made choices not of Babylon. Choices not, get that down, choices not of babylon okay that's the second thing now look in verse 8 let's read verse 8 and following talking about choices not of babylon but daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself and god gave daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs said to daniel i fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs who had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, this is what Daniel said, look at this, test your servants for ten days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. He said, look, We're not going to eat from the king's table. Just put me on the Tom Brady diet, brother. I mean, just vegetables and water. That's all I need, man. And then let your appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days, put them on probation for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. Now this is where Daniel and his friends really begin to shine. Remember, you've got fifty to seventy young men who've been brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, and four of them have said, We're not going to do that. They they drew a line in the sand, and they stepped over that line with boldness and confidence, because they knew what the Bible said. Now, there's a couple things I want you to to consider when we think about Daniel here, okay? First of all is his conviction. Now, look in verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Literally, the Hebrew says, Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself. I mean, he he, he was placed in this setting, and yet at the end of the day, he said, I'm not going to do that. Kind of reminds me of Moses. You know, Daniel and Moses had a lot in common, didn't they? Moses was also ultimately adopted by the uh, daughter of the Pharaoh. He became Pharaoh's grandson. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He he had a full-ride scholarship to the University of Egypt and all of this. And yet, at the end of the day, he refused to follow what he was given. Now watch this. Acts chapter 7, this says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds, but, but watch Hebrews 11. Now watch this. This is what it said about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, All of you middle school students, high school students, college students, just look up here for a moment, okay? Sooner or later, it's probably already happened, but sooner or later, you're going to be asked to compromise something that you believe, something that that you know to be true. The world, Babylon is going to ask you to compromise who you are, all right? What are you going to do? So I, I mentioned a moment ago about my time when I joined the Marines, well, part of that time that I was in the Marines, for two years, I was uh, stationed at a place called Camp David up in Maryland, mountains of Maryland, it's where the president goes on the weekends for little mini vacations and so forth. And, and I worked there for the, uh, uh, George Bush, the senior, the father, and then I was also working there with everybody's favorite Arkansan, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and, um, and as you can imagine, getting to Camp David, I had to jump through several hoops. You know, You had to get a top secret clearance, all these background investigations, you had to answer tests and do interviews and so forth. Well, I remember one specific test that they had me and about 12 or 13 other young Marines have to take. It was a written test of about 200 questions, and uh, it was basically a personality index. All kinds of different questions on this thing. <clears throat> so we're sitting in this classroom, and, uh, and I'm answering the questions, just going down the list, writing my answers. And I specifically remember there was probably about 10 or 12 religious questions sprinkled throughout this this test, one of which was this. I'll never forget this question. It said, did Jesus turn water into wine? I thought that's kind of an odd question to ask, but I mean, of course he turned water into wine. I mean, the Bible said it. I believe it. See, now just remember, I had only been a Christian for about a year and a half. I got saved in high school and, and I would, I, listen, I was saved at a church with a high view of Scripture just like Crossgate, a church that always asked the question, what does the Bible say just like Crossgate? So listen, I was taught that if the Bible said it, that settles it, Jack, right? So did Jesus turn water into wine? Well, of course he turned water into wine. The Bible says he did, so therefore he did. But then I heard a voice. See, this is the voice of the world coming in. The voice said, wait a minute, Phil, before you check yes, is it possible... That if you say that you believe that Jesus turned water into wine, that they're going to brand you as some kind of religious fanatic. And they probably don't want religious fanatics around the president of the United States. right? So if you check yes, you're probably not going to get to go to Camp David, and you're probably going to be cleaning toilets at Camp Lejeune or Camp Pendleton or somewhere. You're not going to get to go work for the president. And then God the Holy Spirit spoke, and he said, You know better. You know better than that. You know that Jesus turned water, because, because my word says so. And I'll just leave the results to me, Phil. You stand true to your convictions. And I said, yes, Jesus turned water into wine. So when I got done with this test, I stepped outside of the classroom, and there was about 10 of those Marines. They were already done with the test, standing around, kind of bantering back and forth and talking about all the different questions on this test. And I'll never forget, that question came up. And I I was listening, and these other Marines over there, they said, yeah, what about that one that that asked if Jesus turned water into wine? How should I know I wasn't even there? (laughs) You know, and they're cracking jokes about Jesus and all this, and I'm just thinking, well, I believe Jesus turned water into wine because the Bible says so. So here's what I found out. About six months later, I found out that they were actually looking for Marines with some religious conviction because they knew that they could trust them more than people that had no religious ethical framework at all. Oh, and here's the other thing. Those three wise guys who were cracking jokes about Jesus, poof, I never saw them again. They got taken out of the pipeline. They didn't make it to Camp David, all right? So just remember. You say, "Come on, Phil." That's that's such a small thing. I mean, just Did Jesus turn white? Just it's a little thing on a test. Folks, let me tell you something. A little compromise and another little compromise and another little compromise becomes a great big compromise. And then suddenly you find yourself drifting away from God rather than drawing closer to God. You compromise on little things and I'll show you somebody who's going to compromise on a big thing one day. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, look at this. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You look at Daniel, and you say, wait a minute, Phil. Daniel was kind of, he was kind of arbitrary with his convictions, wasn't he? I mean, because, yes, he dug his heels in when it came to, to eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine, but he went to the, to the university. He didn't have a problem with that. And, and I mean, he, he, he took that new name. He didn't, he didn't turn that down. I mean, Daniel seems a little erratic in his compromise. You know, that's a great question. So let me give you an answer, okay? Daniel was doing the exact same thing that we do at Crossgate Church every single week when we say, what does the Bible say? And Daniel's convictions were shaped by the crystal clear teaching of the Word of God, just like ours should be. For example, does the Bible anywhere say that you can't study in a foreign university or be a quote-unquote out-of-state student? Nope, doesn't say that anywhere. I mean, Daniel was grounded in who he was. He knew who he was in God. All this training, it, did, it, didn't, it didn't have an effect on him. Okay? What about this? Where in the Bible does it say that you can't have someone else call you a different name? It doesn't say that. I mean, listen, Daniel knew who he was. Daniel knew that God was his judge. I mean, they could have called him John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. It didn't matter. I mean, listen, Daniel was who he was. He didn't have to worry about that. But does the Bible say anything, meaning for the Old Testament, because that was the Bible of the day, did the Bible say anything about what they could and could not eat? Yes, it did. In very clear, no uncertain terms did the Bible outline that. And so that's where Daniel dug in his heels. Makes total sense to me. Which, by the way, I love the fact that Daniel didn't feel like he had to die on every single hill. Do do y'all appreciate that about Daniel? Listen. Listen. I know some of y'all have come out of churches where you were told that you had to die on every single hill, on every little thing, this legalistic, rigid kind of religion, and, and looking back, you realize you're probably totally miserable in that setting, right? Of course, there's other churches that'll say, it doesn't matter what you believe. Live however you want. God, God is love. I mean, that's all we need to know. Let me tell you something, friends. God has not told us to be dogmatic on every little thing, but there's some things where God has told us to be bull dogmatic, and we're not backing up an inch on the most important things crystal clearly spelled out in the Scripture. All right, so that's Daniel's conviction. All right? But think also about Daniel's community. All right, go back and look at the Scripture. Daniel wasn't trying to do this all by himself. Now, yes, the vast majority of these young men they caved in, they compromised, they turned into Babylonians, but Daniel and three others stood their ground. You know, that's about the size of a discipleship group, isn't it? You don't have to have a thousand people on your side in order to take a stand, but it sure helps to have two or three others in your corner, doesn't it? That's exactly what, listen, these people, and you're going to run into them, you talk about the voices out there, you're going to run into them at work, you're going to run into them at school, you're going to run into them in your neighborhoods, maybe even your family who say something like this, I you know, I don't need to go to church, I can worship God on Lake Washita, I can worship God camping and fishing and hunting, I don't need to gather and go to church. Listen, the people who tell you that, and I'm just going to be flat out with you, okay, The people who tell you that either are intellectually dishonest or just don't know their Bibles. All right, Look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? Hebrews chapter 3 and also chapter 10. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I will tell you that without biblical community, your family will not thrive in Babylon. It will not happen. Your family will drift, your faith will dissolve, and you'll be holding nothing but dust in your hands for eternity. Okay. So Daniel had a community. The importance of being connected with God's people, All right. being connected with God's people, is critical but lastly consider also his consistency Daniel's consistency now he, he initially started over the course of 10 days they put him on probation for 10 days and every single day Daniel ate vegetables and drank water he didn't eat the the, 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 the filet mignon the lobster tail you know the shrimp and all this other awesome stuff he just said vegetables and water man Tom Brady diet, and he did that for 10 days and then guess what he did it for three years day after day after day Eugene Peterson famously said and often said that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Sometimes, I know you feel this way sometimes because I feel this way sometimes. Day after day after day, I want to be consistent. Day after day after day, I want to walk with the Lord. And sometimes I wonder if it's really worth it. Because I know people who have spurned God, who are doing their own thing, and they seem to be enjoying life, getting off scot-free, living how they want to live. And sometimes you wonder if it's worth it to be consistently following the Lord. But I will tell you, the Word of God says, it is not in vain. Not in vain. And when we faithfully, consistently follow God, guess what? God puts his hand on us in an undeniable and special way. That's exactly what we see here. The third and last thing is this. all right, These four that remained faithful, God made them champions in Babylon. That's the third thing I want you to see. God made them champions in and over Babylon. Okay, Go to verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, that's the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel was 14 to 16 years years old here. In a few weeks we'll see him when he's 70 to 80 years old. See, God established Daniel in a position of prominence but only after Daniel proved faithful to the Lord. Now look, God's Faithfulness does not come with, with a promise in advance of riches, of prosperity, of fame, of, of, of all the toys in life and all of that. But here's the, here's the advance promise that I can guarantee you comes along with faithfulness. Okay? Peace, contentment, joy, all of the things that really make life meaningful and worth living. And come up around the campfire, let me tell you something, okay? I would be a follower of Jesus Christ even if there were no heaven or hell. You know what I mean? I mean, there is a heaven to be gained, there is a hell to be feared. But even if none of that existed, I would live my life completely for Jesus Christ. Why? Again, because of the peace, the relational joy. The, 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 happy, the blessings, the, the real intangible blessings, again, that, that make life what it is. All of that i found in, in Jesus Christ. I've walked with Jesus for 32 years now. I wouldn't trade a second of that for anything this world offers. Because again, what will what, what, I have? But, but dust in my hands in eternity. But I said just a moment ago, Yep. And, and I don't want to be very honest about this. I know that it is, it is very likely that all of us from time to time grow weary in doing good, don't we? I mean, just be honest. You know, you, again, you, you see your, your, your friends, your coworkers. they don't even go to church. They, I mean, man, I'm sitting here in church. They're out on the lake. They're, they're doing this. They're having a grand old time and, and they, they seem to be doing fine. Right? Let me give you a verse. Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, stay faithful. Stay faithful to God. The challenges we face in Babylon are many. Some are are very, very burdensome. Stay faithful. Remain focused on Jesus, and, and we will, in due season, reap that incredible blessing even beyond what we experience now but stay faithful i look forward to walking through the book of daniel with you in the the next few weeks but for right now let's bow and let's ask god let's ask god to keep us sanctified unified and secure here in babylon we invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer@crossgate.org. At Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.